We're in the book of Luke, the gospel according to Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter number 10 this morning. If you were here last Sunday, we looked at a passage of scripture, not from Luke, but from the letter to the Hebrews, as we've been emphasizing our welcome to one another in the house of God, our welcome to those in our community. And we looked at that passage highlighting several things in and among the family of God that should never change. Change is an inevitable part of living life, and some things change for the better, and of course we're thankful for that. We're thankful for the changes in medical technology, right? Amen. Those are all good things, and some things change in ways that um, we don't necessarily always like, but change is inevitable, and sometimes it's important uh, to uh, recognize the importance of it while at the same time recognizing that in the kingdom of Christ, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, some things should never change. We talked about that last week. For example, our duty to love never changes. Loving one another as Christ has loved us, that ought not ever change. Our pursuit of holiness, whether it be concerning our personal relationships with one another, our relationship with the Lord, how we live, how we act, how we react, how we talk, how we manage our money, how we steward our marriages and our families, our pursuit of holiness, Christ-likeness, is something that should never change in and among the people of God. And then we also learn that our Lord himself never changes. One of the great statements of the Bible, Hebrews 13 and verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same, say it out loud, Yesterday and today and forever. Boy, it gives me great comfort in a changing world. Our community's changing, our community's growing. Those of you that lived around Pensacola have shown me pictures back in the 50s and 60s when you were youngsters, and some things in those pictures are not even standing anymore. They're not here. Other things are in its place. Our community doesn't look like it looked 40 and 50 and 60 years ago. It doesn't look like it did 25 years ago. And yet most of that is a very positive thing. But in the kingdom, some things should never change. And you know, when it comes to loving each other, which is one of those things that never changes, as we pointed out last week, one of those areas involves hospitality. The great and biblical ministry of hospitality, where there in Hebrews 13 and verse 2, the Bible says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And you know, that's kind of been our theme as we've gone throughout this 30-day welcome initiative at Hillcrest. It's that kind of thing, showing hospitality to strangers, not even fully recognizing who it is that you're loving, who it is that you're ministering to, who it is that you're showing compassion toward. You don't even know who it is. And yet we have this responsibility to show that kind of biblical hospitality. And that's what the Welcome Initiative is really all about in better helping us to accomplish our mission in our community. We've identified 10 present and a couple of potentially future things that are designed to upgrade and modernize many of our facilities here at Hillcrest so that we can be best prepared to reach people, not only today, but in the decade to come, two decades to come, and beyond in what is now a rapidly growing community. 
And you know, as you think about our community, we live in a sea of people. And let me just say this morning, are y'all listening? Say amen. People out there in our community, they're not like us. They don't think like us. They don't have the same value system. I'm telling you, not only are Christian people the minority in Pensacola, Florida, we are a very distinct minority in, in Pensacola, Florida. And we live in the Bible Belt. Imagine what it would be like to be a Christian in New York or Boston or Portland or Seattle where virtually nobody goes to church. 4%, 4% of the population of Seattle, Washington attend a church, 4%. So we don't have to worry about a mission field across the seas. We've got one right here in our own blessed USA. And our most immediate mission field is the one we're living in, where the great majority of people have no connection to a church whatsoever. They're not like us. They don't think about God like we think. They don't think about the Bible like we think. They sure don't think about church like we think. And so we always do well to remember and keep that in mind because we need to have, as the people of God, a special sensitivity to the unsaved in our community if we're going to impact them and see them reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ and see our church continue to grow and fulfill its mission in our world. <clears throat> and that's exactly what's behind Paul's statement from Romans 15. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And pleasing our neighbor, welcoming one another is just as true for those outside of the body of Christ as it is for those within the body of Christ. Now with all that kind of as a backdrop, I wanna take you this morning to one of the most familiar stories in all of the Bible. And the reason I'm gonna do that is because this story is a running commentary on virtually everything that I've talked about for the last month. It is, of course, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it is the go, when it comes to showing hospitality to others, loving others, welcoming others, receiving others as Christ has received you, this is a commentary on those theological passages. This is a living illustration. This becomes the go to passage when it comes to showing compassion and mercy to people who are not like us. Everybody following me so far, say amen. Let's reacquaint ourselves with the passage. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 29. Y'all ready to read? Say amen. The Bible says, but a lawyer desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jericho, or from Jerusalem rather, to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, insert in parentheses, a dirty, stinking, rotten Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. 
And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, which of these three, Jesus asked, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do Likewise, Father, in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray that your Holy Spirit would bathe us with his presence today and inspire us and convict us for our shortcomings this morning that we may walk in harmony with Christ in the center of the will of God. Use this passage of Scripture in a way to grow and to mature us so that we look, think, act, speak, and respond more like Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. <clears throat> Parable of the prodigal son, probably, or the good Samaritan, is probably only less popular among people than the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, we've known it since our time as kids in church, those of us that were raised in church, and it is a running commentary on a bunch of biblical passages the passage in Hebrews that talks about showing hospitality to strangers, not knowing that you may be entertaining an angel unaware. If you want to know what that looks like, read the parable of the Good Samaritans. That's what it means to show hospitality to strangers. Many of you are familiar with Paul's passage in 1 Corinthians 13 about love, where Paul defines love in the most complete and exhaustive way found in the Bible. Love is, love is, love is, love is not, love is not, love is not. You remember that passage? And one of those love is statements simply says love is kind. And I've said before, generally speaking, Christians are just supposed to be nice. Can I have an amen? Cantankerous Christian is an oxymoron, man. There ought not be any such thing because love is kind. And the fruit of the Spirit is goodness and compassion, gentleness. And the parable of Good Samaritan is a running commentary on what that verse actually means. You don't even have to be a follower of Jesus Christ to know something that Jesus said found in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, therefore, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We call that what? That's the golden rule. And lost people even know that. Now, if you ask them, kind of like one of these late-night talk show hosts, you put a microphone in their face and say, okay, who said do unto others as you would have them do unto you? I mean, they might, you know, say Robin Williams or something. They don't know who said it. But Jesus said it. And if you want to know what it means, how about looking at the Good Samaritan? Amen. Because it's a running commentary on what it means to show hospitality to others and to demonstrate the kindness of love and to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's why it's so popular and 
That's why it's such an important passage of Scripture. The occasion for this parable is a spirited conversation that's taking place between Jesus and a Jewish religious leader. He's called a lawyer here in Scripture, but not a lawyer in the sense of criminal or civil law, personal injury law, not that kind of lawyer. He is a religious lawyer. He's a scribe of some kind. And these guys tended to be argumentative. They're constantly trying to trap Jesus, constantly trying to box him in a corner, constantly trying to make him look silly, to discredit him among the people because they just thought he was an upstart, self-appointed rabbi out of Nazareth. And what good thing can come out of Nazareth, right? And so they're constantly trying to make light of him and belittle him. And that's what this guy was, well-trained, well-educated, degrees hanging on the wall. Let me put this guy in his place. And they're having a discussion about salvation that you can read about a few verses earlier. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's kind of like the same discussion that Jesus had with the rich young ruler. And Jesus looks at him and said, man, you're a teacher of the law, and you come to me asking me this question, you ought to know it. What do you think? And the guy goes back to the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, well, there you go. I mean, you love the Old Testament. That sums up the Old Testament in a nutshell. You go and you do that. And the man is still not happy because he hadn't boxed Jesus in a corner yet. He hadn't made him look stupid yet. So he just keeps pushing. You do, Jesus said, you do this to your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. You do that and you will live. And the guy, not content with that as an answer, looks at him, pushes him back a little more and says, okay, who is my neighbor? Let's define neighbor. I want you to tell me that. What kind of a person am I to love? What kind of a person is it that I'm supposed to show hospitality to? What kind of a person am I to be compassionate toward? Let's, let's drill down deep. Tell me what kind of a person defines who my neighbor is. And in answer to that question, Jesus tells this very popular parable. And in answering it, he not only defines who our neighbors are, even better yet, he defines what kinds of neighbors that you and I are supposed to be. That's really what the parable is about. Not who is my neighbor, but what kind of a neighbor am I? What does Christ expect to me in terms of this business of showing love and hospitality and welcoming strangers? What does it mean to welcome a stranger? The occasion of this story, of course, involves a traveler who's making the 20-mile journey from Jerusalem down to the city of Jericho. Not very far. Take about a day to get there. But it was over a very rough a barren, desolate, and dangerous road. It's called the Jericho Road. You lost 3,000 feet in elevation going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. So you were kind of going downhill. If y'all have ever kind of climbed a hill or climbed a mountain, you know it's easier to climb it than it is to come down it. It's harder on the knees to go down into the Grand Canyon than it is to climb out of the Grand Canyon. And so it's dangerous, it's hard, it's barren, and there are lots of robbers there because it's a twisted road. 
and you never know who was lurking, and that's why you typically didn't travel alone because you're liable to get mugged and beat up and have your goods taken away from you. That's why it was called the bloody way. The Jericho Road was known as the bloody way to anybody that had ever traveled it, and they would tell you, don't travel it alone. Always go in pairs. Always go in a group. And this anonymous traveler that we don't know anything about finds out the hard way, and he gets the pulp beat out of him, beaten, robbed, left for dead in the road, barely clinging to life. He's sucking wind by the time we get to him. And as the story continues, we're faced now with a series of travelers who come across him. He's lying in the road, left for dead, and then some passersby come along. The first two are Jewish travelers. In fact, they're not only Jewish travelers, they're Jewish clergymen, paid religious professionals. One is a priest. He's responsible for performing the rites of sacrifice in the temple. The next guy that comes along is a Levite. We might call him the associate pastor. He's on the temple staff, and he supports religious observance there in the temple. High degree of respect in the religious Jewish community for both of these men. And that's probably why Jesus singles them out, because he knew that he would have his audience. He knew that the audience would hear this, and immediately they would think, okay, help is on the way. These are our go-to guys here, priest and Levite. We want our kids to grow up, our boys to be just like these guys. And so they're expecting good things to happen. Only they don't. In fact, not only do good things not happen, these guys don't even seem to care that the guy is bloodied, that he's bruised, that he's beaten. They don't seem to care that he's dying. Now, we don't know what's going through their mind. This is a story. And so we don't know the motive and we don't know what they're thinking, but probably if we put ourselves in their position, we would recognize, first of all, the Jewish religious establishment, they're not supposed to touch dead corpses. And they probably are wondering as they look down, well, he may be alive, but he may be dead. In order to determine if he's alive or dead, we're going to have to go down there and roll him over and take his pulse and listen to his breathing, which means we'll have to touch him. And if he is dead, then we're jacked up because we're rendered ceremonially unclean at that point. And we'll have to go through all these rituals, all these cleansings. We'll have to pay for it. It's long. It's expensive. We'll miss our work at the temple. So it's better not to risk it. And so they don't. You know, maybe they're in a hurry Maybe they're fearful that bandits are around the corner. If we stop and turn our back to the road to tend to this guy, it may be a ploy. It may be a trick. We may be the ones end up getting beaten up and robbed. So they got perhaps all these kinds of things. Or maybe it was just a simple deal. They just were tired. They had business to attend to. They were in a hurry. And so they decided not to stop. You know, part of our problem is that sometimes, I, have you ever noticed that you're like me when you, you can see somebody that's in need, somebody that needs a hand, somebody that needs a touch, but you're just, you're on your way somewhere or you've got something that's going on or the weekend is already consumed and you find yourself rationalizing yourself out of involvement because you just have too much to do. 
How many have ever passed somebody broken down on the side of the road and your first thought was, I ought to stop and help. But then the guy on the other shoulder says, oh, there are a lot of, road, a lot of people out on the road. Somebody else will pick them up. Somebody else will stop. You ever done that? All the time. And it's because we're in a hurry. We got places to go, things to do. The clock is ticking. I remember when I moved from Dallas-Fort Worth years ago after finishing seminary, I went from Dallas-Fort Worth to Forsyth, Missouri. I went from 5 million people in a city to a city limit sign that said 1,692. And I thought, well, you know, this, is going, this isn't going to be all bad. This is going to be great. Everybody's going to be laid back. Everybody's going to relax. I'm just going to go visiting people, sit on the front porch, drink a cold drink for about eight hours. Just love my people, let them love me. You know what I found out when I went to Taney County, Missouri? Those people were just as anxious, stressed out, moving and shaking as anybody else I'd ever been associated with. Eggs might be cheaper in the country, but people are just as much a hurry in the country as they are anywhere else. We're Americans by and large, and we're just moving and shaking, and we have an agenda, and we don't want anything to get in the way of it. That's always been the case in America. I remember reading Democracy in America when I was a student in American politics at Vanderbilt, and one of the texts that kids still read today, it's the go-to text, is Alexis de Tocqueville, Democracy in America. It was written in 1835. He was a Frenchman that came to America, spent a year in America observing this new experiment called democracy in this brand new nation that up to the time of the Revolutionary War hadn't even been a nation. And he kept a journal, and he wrote in book form his thoughts after spending a year here. And it was published in 1835 as Democracy in America, and college students still read it today. And one of the things that he noticed was that Americans in general seem to be, using his words, one of the distinguishing marks of Americans is that they always seem to be in such a hurry. 1835, he wrote that. I'd like to think, now he's a Frenchman, and you're talking about laid-back people, you know, they're laid-back today. But they were really laid-back then. And so he saw everybody hurrying, scurrying, building things, engaging in commerce, shipping, trading, mercantilism was on the rise. And I think that somebody visited America for the first time today, they, they would think, you know what, it's it's worse today than it was then, and they'd be right. And the thing about that hurry-up lifestyle is it affects our discipleship. Because the Bible talks about showing hospitality. You've got to slow down to show hospitality. Isn't that right? You've got to slow down to show kindness. You've got to show, slow down to be generous. You've got to slow down to show compassion. You have to be willing to stop. You have to be willing to have your schedule interrupted in order to look like Jesus because he stopped all the time all you got to do is read the gospels to see that he's walking along son of David have mercy on me stops he's gone along funeral procession stops how about we raise a dead guy back to life today amen bless a family for the rest of their life and he's got to stop he's always going somewhere walking through Samaria stop woman at a well Let's witness to this girl for a while because nobody else will because she's a woman. Leads her to faith. You gotta be willing to stop in order to look 
like Christ. That's especially true in the world that we live in because we're surrounded by people in spiritual need. They're lost, they're exhausted, they're lonely, they're afraid of the future, they're afraid to die. And we have the remedy for all of that stuff. His name is Jesus Christ. And if we don't give it to them, who's going to? Welcoming a stranger, that's what it means. Now, with respect to this dilemma faced by these two clergymen, we think that they're going to just save the day, but selfishness wins the day. They, they decide to do what's best for them, not what's best for the wounded guy. And the Bible says the same thing about both of these men. How do they respond? They did what? They passed by what? On the other side. Same thing said about both of them. They just took the mount, took the bridle, moved it to one side, came around the guy. Too much at stake, too much time to waste. He may be dead. He may mess us up. Somebody else will come along and tend to it. It's just a terrible response. He just pretended he wasn't even there. And these were the religious folks. These were the folks that had the answers. We expect them to stop and help, but their looks were deceiving. Man, they looked the part, they talked the part, but they didn't practice what they preached. They were all style and no substance. And it's a sad testimonial that in churches all over the world today, people just like that. Flowing robes, religious language, maybe even have a verse or two committed to memory. They look the part, maybe even sometimes act the part, but the bottom line is when the reality comes, push comes to shove, rubber meets the road. They engage people in desperate need. They'll choose self over others, and they'll pass by on the other side. Lots of people like that. Talk a lot about mission, never seem to be involved in mission. Talk a lot about praying, almost never pray. Talk a lot about reading the Word, memorizing Scripture, and living by the Word, hardly ever open the Bible. Talk a lot about giving, but never get around to it. And the reality is, we close our eyes, pass by on the other side, all flowing robes, all spiritual talk. But there is a third character, and man, an unlikely third character. I'd imagine when Jesus brings this guy up, every jaw in the crowd fell. Progression is important in storytelling. And he tells it progressively. First, we start with a priest. Priest didn't do anything, passed by on the other side. Then we take the next progression down. That's a Levite, passes by on the other side. We'd expect the next guy to be what? Well, if progression is important in storytelling, I would think that that would be a well-respected Jewish layman. Certainly going to be a Jew of some kind. The clergy didn't do anything. Let's just bring a layperson along. But that's not what he does. He goes from priest to Levite to Samaritan. And everybody goes, what you talking about, Jesus? Samaritan? Where'd that come from? Did he say Samaritan? Yeah, I think that's what he, did you say Samaritan? We thought you said Samaritan. Can you repeat that? We can't hear in the back. No, you can hear Samaritan. And this most 
unlikely of person. Jews hated those guys. They were mixed race, half-bred, only believed half the Bible. First five books of the Old Testament was all a Samaritan adhered to. The Samaritans were, were descended from Jews who intermarried with Assyrians, basically, violated the law of God, intermarried with pagans, and they produced a race of people that became known as the Samaritans. And the Jews hated them, impure, didn't love all Scripture, worshiped in a different temple up on a mountain in strange ways, according to the Jews. And yet the reality is, I mean, you remember when, <laughs> when Jesus and, and uh, James and John and Peter, they had been passed through, they were rejected by the Samaritans, and James and John came to Jesus, and they said, uh, Master, would you like us to pray that God would bring down fire? I mean, these guys wanted to napalm the place out of existence. They were so angry with them. Yes, that's Samaria. It's that kind of a person that becomes the hero here. He looks more like Jesus than the people of God. And that's Jesus' point. It's what he's trying to communicate. And speaking of progression, did you notice the verbs here that describe what the Samaritan did, beginning in verse 33? The Bible says, he came to where the man was, and when he what? Saw him. He had what? Compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds. That's an important progression. He came, minding his own business, comes along the Jericho Road. He saw. Same thing happened with the previous two travelers who came and saw. But here's where it gets different. Whereas the other two came, saw, closed eyes, went around. This guy came, saw, went to him had compassion on him, and then it did something. It moved from heart to hands, from eyes to heart to hands. He bound up his wounds. Have I told y'all before that following Jesus Christ as a disciple can be a costly thing? Where did he get those bandages? This is not a doctor with a doctor's kit. Where'd he get those bandages? How about ripping his own tunic? He had to rip his clothes in order to bandage those. When did he get that oil and wine? Who provided that oil and wine? They were his. So he reaches into his saddlebag after ripping his own cloak, and he pours his own oil and wine, valuable commodities that cost money, and they were for his consumption, and he uses them as an antiseptic to bind up that man's wound. And then, if that's not enough, he picks the man up by his own strength and places him on his own mount, which meant that the Samaritan had to do what the rest of the way into Jericho? He had to walk the rest of the way. Then he gets to the hotel. He gets to the Hilton Garden in Jericho, and he says... I need to get this guy single, king suite. I don't know if it's a king suite or not. I just made that up. But he got him a room. And he said, here's two denarii, two days wages. Scholars estimate that would have been enough to have supported him there for up to two months. And then the guy says, I've got to tend to my business. 
I bandaged him up. He's in good shape. Take care of him. Here's the money. Two months. That'll provide everything you need until I get back. If by chance you go through it all and need more, let me just get you to imprint my American Express Platinum card and put it on my bill. We'll get it settled up when I get back. See, this is generosity to the extreme coming from somebody to somebody that didn't look and think anything like him. In fact, it was an enemy. Which reminds me of something else Jesus said. Bless your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless, bless, which is active, and do not curse. You want to know what it means to welcome a stranger to show hospitality the demonstration of the fact that love is kind? What it means to do unto others as God would have do unto you? Then just look at the parable of the good Samaritan. Once he's finished with the story, our Lord looks at the lawyer and says, now, that was a long answer to a simple question. Let me finish by asking you a question. Which one of those boys was a neighbor to that man laying in the middle of the road? The guy's response has always fascinated me because he's like a husband found out by his wife who can't say, I was wrong. He can't say the Samaritan. Do you notice that? He can't say it. He doesn't say the Samaritan. He just says the one who showed mercy. All right, Jesus said, that's good enough. I'll take it because that's right. And then he looks at the guy and he moves from interrogative, a question, to imperative, a command. Which one was a neighbor? The one who showed mercy. Now, you go and do likewise. Which is an extension given to every one of us. When it comes to showing hospitality, loving others, showing kindness, ministering grace and mercy, doing unto others as we would have them do unto us, Jesus says, be like the Samaritan. You go and do likewise because that's what it means to welcome a stranger in the house of the Lord. And brothers and sisters, this is really what our welcome initiative has been all about. We've emphasized projects and we've emphasized buildings. Can I make a statement this morning? Worship centers and student centers and worship center lobbies and greeting areas never will save anybody. The gospel saves people. But facilities are just tools that help us better accomplish that mission to which we're all called. This welcome initiative has been far more about wounded, broken, defeated people who are swimming in a sea all around us. Lost, they need to be saved, they're beat up, 
They're frustrated. They're lonely. They're exhausted. They're afraid of the future. They're afraid to die. And the calling of God's people is to go and do likewise. Whatever it takes to tend their wounds and bring them home. This is God's word. Let all who agree say,